Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do say this morning, great is your faithfulness unto us. And it is very fitting that they would play that song on Father's Day because we are aware of it right now. That you have been a good father to us. Our Father in heaven, you love us, you're patient with us, you are attentive to us, you are not quickly or easily angered with us. You're a good father. And we say thank you. And Father, we come here on Sunday mornings and we're glad to be here. This has become such a dear part of our week. Now we've come to the, the main event, your word, the preaching of your word, the bread that gives life. And so, Father, today we ask that you would use it, that we would take it in, that we would feed upon it, feast upon it, that you would grow us with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 3. We're going to continue right along in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3, if you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 921 in the Pew Bible. Page 921 in the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 3. Happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there. We truly are thankful for you. Thank you. I am uh, a little bit emotional, more emotional than usual on Father's Day because uh, I have children and I hope and I think that I'm committed to being a father. Now that's up for debate on whether I'm a good one or not, but I'm often and always thinking about it and you hear me uh, going through fatherhood, um, you hear me talk about that. I, I, you hear me involve you all in my, in my life, in my family life, in my fathering. And uh, there are a couple reasons why I'm so into to being a father. One, um, one that you wouldn't expect is, is because of my wife, Val. Val has taught me so much about what it means to be a family man. I had no idea um, how, how much I would enjoy being a dad, and Val has helped me understand family and, and, and parenting and loving our kids and being devoted to them, and so I'm thankful for Val, but there, there are two other really, really, really good reasons, and the, the first is that we, we have five kids, and uh, just naturally, I have to think a lot about fathering, what it means to be a dad. There is, there is a lot of uh, being a dad that has to happen with, with five kids. Uh, I joked a couple weeks ago about trying to count how many diapers I've changed in my life, and I, I lost count at like 10,000. Uh, it's a lot of diapers that, that, that I have changed myself, you know, so I have to naturally think a lot about being a dad, but it's, it's good stuff. It really is. I, I can say with all honesty before all of you here that I love being a dad. I I think, now I could be wrong, but I think that it is my absolute favorite thing in life. 
And I've had a really good and fun and enjoyable life up until now at age 36. But right now, being a father at age 36 to these five children is the best and most fun and most rewarding and most exciting thing I have ever experienced. And I, I, I don't think that I'm deceived. I really and truly mean that. So just having kids has caused me to think about it a lot. And then the, the third thing, so if Val and, and then having kids, the third thing is, is my dad. Uh, y'all have met my father. He's been here before. I have a really, really, really good dad. He is a hero to me. Uh, he is in so many ways not the best dad in the world. He knows that, and, and I know that. But he's a really, really good one. And for all the areas that he uh, lacks or struggles, he makes up for it in just loving me. And he's not one of those dads that ever tells me that he loves me. But he is one of those dads who made sure I knew it. However he did that, he did. Uh, and so there's a real sense in my life to where I just love being a dad because I have a dad. And I think God's designed it that way. I want us to look today in the Gospel of Mark. And it's not a passage on fathers necessarily it is a passage that directly speaks about the son and if you know the son then you know the father and that's how I'm going to get there today Jesus has started his ministry in the gospel of Mark and he's moving right along and Mark does not waste any time at showing us that there is something incredibly different or special about Jesus. He's rolling now. He begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, saying, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can say that when Jesus began his ministry, roughly around A.D. 30, it was go time. It was go time for all humanity. It was go time for all people. It was go time for sinners. And it was go time for the Savior of sinners. Jesus, if you will, hit the ground running. And we are thankful that the Gospels show us that. If you just go right through, you see at the end of chapter 1 that he cleanses a leper. At the beginning of chapter 2, he heals a paralytic that by his friend's faith was brought through the roof of the house. Right In chapter 2, verse 13, he calls Levi, the sinful, arrogant, haughty tax collector, changes his life and makes him a disciple. Then, as I've preached on here recently, he, he, he explains to us fasting, he, he explains to us rest and the Sabbath. And then last week, as you can see, on the Sabbath, he heals a man who has a crippled hand. Jesus shows that he is over the Sabbath, Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus shows that he can just take a man's hand and heal it completely. Jesus has now left us in position of taking a step back, setting our eyes upon him and saying, this is the man we ought to listen to. If there's anybody in life that you should be bowed down and surrendered to, it is God Almighty through his son, the Lord Jesus. And in our passage today, it's almost like a bridge passage. It's trying to get us to verse 13, which we'll look at next week, where Jesus then uh, brings together the full group of the 12 apostles, which is going to be an outstanding passage for us to study next Sunday. 
But we're not there yet. And we've got verses 7 through 12 that, again, is just a little connector. And I want us to read there today. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Now, you might be wondering, why is he withdrawing? Why is he getting away? Well, look back at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It is one of the most puzzling things in the world today why some people can be against God. Why can some people be against goodness? Why would somebody hate somebody who's never sinned, right? Why would people hate purity? Why would people hate holiness? Why would people hate righteousness? Why would people want to do away with it? And yet we know the answer. Either get in line with God or you have to oppose God because God says some things about you that hurt. So you either accept those and therefore turn to him and be forgiven or you do not accept those, and therefore you would have to reject him. This is what's happening here. All that had just happened in chapter 3, 1 through 6, is you have a man in the synagogue that's crippled, and Jesus heals them. There's honestly nothing negative about the passage. There's nothing bad happening. There's nothing ill about it. There's nobody fighting. There's no confrontation. There's nothing. Jesus heals a crippled man who's there in the synagogue. And they want to destroy him. It's a picture of our pride and our arrogance and our sinfulness. Then in verse 7, immediately Mark tells us that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. A great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him. Now again, I mean, we, we don't, I don't think that you need me to keep explaining how dynamic Jesus was during this time, but, but this is simply the case. Who he was, the way he carried himself, the way he spoke, the way he interacted with various people was, was awesome, and people were drawn to it, and that's what's happening here again. He's withdrawing from the crowds, and yet the crowds are going to him. Verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready, for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So you're kind of picturing like maybe, you know, 50 people going after him. Many times the Bible tells us that the crowd was so overwhelming, Jesus in many ways feared for his safety, feared for his life, if you will. He said, get a boat. I'm going to have to get away from these people, literally, so that they don't crush him. Verse 10 for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Their crying out declaration was pinpoint accurate. Now Jesus has an appointment at Calvary, at the cross. And he has shown us already in the Gospels, and he will show us throughout his entire life 
nothing, and I mean nothing, will get in the way of him dying on the cross. Jesus came to die. Nothing was going to stop him from dying. And so, he does often say, don't tell anybody. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. In other words, don't blow my cover. Let me keep going to where I'm going to. Jesus had a message to tell. Jesus had places to be. And Jesus had a cross to die on. And he didn't want anything to interfere with that. This is not the first time here in the Gospel of Mark. Already, we're just at the beginning of chapter 3. This is not the first time that we've heard him say, don't tell anybody who I am. But Jesus strictly ordering them not to make him known lets us know that they knew. Their statement that you are the Son of God is right. And I want to ask you here today, does your heart cry out with faith and surrender that Jesus is the Son of God? I find it humorous and yet concerning that the evil, unclean spirits that Jesus has authority over, who he has now rebuked and called out of demon-possessed people, listen to me, are more accurate and knowledgeable and honest than many people we know today. In our passage, we have the unclean spirits falling down before him and crying out, You are the Son of God. And I know man after man and woman after woman who will not surrender and fall down and cry out that, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Can we acknowledge here today the folly, the foolishness, the error that is before us if we will not bow ourselves down to Jesus? But their statement is, you are the Son of God. There's a lot to take in when you hear this declaration, Son of God. Jesus has two titles that are common in the Gospels, and it is Son of Man and Son of God. And he uses them interchangeably. They, they mean the same thing. They are speaking to the same person, about the same person. But he uses them at different times in different cases for different reasons. But here the statement is, you are the Son of God. And just like... We may do today. I know your dad, or I know your father, or aren't you such and such's son? Just like that, when you identify somebody as they are the son of, you are saying, I recognize your father. Jesus has not been around very long, he just began his ministry. And so people are wondering, who, who is this? And many times in the Gospels, the question will be asked, who is this? Jesus asked the disciples, who do people think that I am? Remember? And their answers are all over the place. Some people think you're John the Baptist, who was just here a few weeks ago. Some people think you're Jeremiah, who was hundreds of years ago. Some people think you're this, or some people think you're that. They're kind of all over the place on who they think you are. People weren't sure who Jesus was was but the unclean spirits have been rebuked and the one who has all authority in heaven on earth 
speaks to them, they listen to him, and they say, you're the son of God. In other words, you're from God. You're of God. We know who your father is. I don't get to see or hang around my sister too many times during the year because she lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. But, but when I do, in some good, wholesome uh, love, brotherly, sisterly love, we still like to pick at each other a little bit. Nothing, nothing bad, just good times. Um, but I'll start making fun of her because of the way she looks or something like that in a nice way. And, and often she'll say, well, have you, have you seen our dad? Can't help it. With a dad like that, that that's how I'm going to look, Right? And she just naturally associates part of the reason why she is the way she is is because that's the way her dad is. You've made those associations before, right? Have you ever heard somebody talk about somebody in a negative way and say, well, his, his dad was just like that. That's how his dad was, right? My kids gave me some Father's Day cards, and in my Father's Day cards, they have pictures of Michael Jordan drawn. They've never seen Michael Jordan play basketball. They don't hardly know anything about Michael Jordan except for that I talk about him a lot. And that's kind of the way life goes. The evil spirits have hit the nail on the head. Jesus, you're God's son. You remind us of God. And so today here on Father's Day, I want to, I want to do two things. I want to show you that Jesus and who he is and what he did, his entire purpose was to point people to God the Father. And then secondly, I want to apply to us that Father's entire purpose is to point their children to God the Father. Jesus pointed people to God the Father. All we've done is read a few chapters, read a few verses. We've seen him heal some people. We've seen him preach some messages. We've heard him say that now is the time the kingdom of God is here, right? Jesus is wanting you to know that when he walks into the room, you are to recognize that the kingdom of God is a real thing. When Jesus walks into the room, you are to be thinking about the kingdom of God. I preached a funeral on Friday, and I just had to turn the tables to, okay, you're looking at somebody here laying in a casket, but I want to ask you for a second, what's it going to be like when you lay in the casket? I had to ask them, I said, will, will people come to your funeral? Who will show up? Will there be any kids at your funeral? Will your family come? You know, people only come to your funeral if you mattered a lot to them. Funerals are often like 11 a.m. on a work day. They're not easy to get to. And the people that usually show up are people that you have really mattered to. And at the funeral, I, I turned the tables for a few minutes. I said, will anybody be here? And if so, will they cry? Will they have anything to say? What will they be thinking about? What will they say about who you were and how you lived and, and how you spoke into their lives and loved them and impacted them? gospel of mark wants us to know that that jesus has come and jesus coming has got everybody thinking about god and jesus sees that this is exactly what it was about we can think of many passages where jesus was praying for the will of the father right 
You remember the, the, the um, what do we call it, the, the modeled prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've prayed that before, right? Everybody's heard the modeled prayer. Your will be done. Jesus teaching us in his longest sermon in the Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, when teaching the disciples how to pray, says, pray this, Father who are in heaven, your will be done. Jesus came wanting us to think about God the Father. I want to read to you a few passages that are very clear that, that you know them. They're probably passages that you've heard before. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2 when we have those infant passages where Jesus is a little boy? And indeed, truly, it's the only passage that we have in the whole Bible where Jesus is a child. We have a lot as a baby, but we have one where he's a child. Do you remember what happens? The family takes the long journey to Jerusalem to worship, and then the... the, the, the um, the caravan takes a long journey back, and they get about a day's out, almost back to Jerusalem, and they look around, and they're like, where's little Jesus? And they can't find Jesus. And so they start stressing out, like any parent would do that's lost their kid, and they run back, and they get back to Jerusalem, and where do they find him? In the synagogue, there, before the teachers, asking great questions, having conversation with the religious leaders about who? God. And they're like, Jesus, what do you think you're doing? And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Do you remember that statement? Didn't you know that I've got one allegiance and I'm not worried about any others. My Father. You want to have a study on the, on, the, on, the, on the unity between the Son and the Father and you will find that they are one and the same. In John chapter 10 verse 30, you know this one. Jesus, to those who don't understand that, says, I and the Father are one. The words of Jesus in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 6, 44, Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, if you want to know Christ, then it has to be the Father's work in you to get you to know Jesus. But if you wanted to flip that a little bit, you may remember John 14, 6 that says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says if you want to get to the Father, you've got to come through me, John 14, 6. But in John 6, 44, Jesus says if you want to come to me, then the Father's got to bring you. There is such a unity between the Father and the Son, also the Holy Spirit. That's why we are believers in the Holy Trinity. There's such a unity in the Godhead, if you will, the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are to see this on Father's Day as an all-out commitment from our Lord Jesus to get you thinking about God. There's a verse in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, verse 18, this is the end, this is the last verse of the prologue of John, the like introduction. Listen to this. No one has ever seen God, 
the only God, no one's ever seen him, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Another version says, he has explained him to us. The Son has explained the Father to us. When Jesus rebukes the unclean spirits in Mark chapter 3 and the crowds are pressing all around him, Jesus knows there are many more places to get to, many more people to encounter, and a cross to die on. Jesus turns around and says, do not make it known who I am because they were exactly right. You are the Son of God. You are reminding us of the Father. Jesus' life points people to God the Father. Church, we need to be people who understand and, and who believe that Jesus is God and Jesus is the way to God. I want to point you to a passage. If you're taking notes, this is one you need to know. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Now, we don't like to be controversial. I hope that y'all have seen in me that I'm not very controversial or, or even confrontational. But when you start talking religion and beliefs, there are some things that just naturally will be that way. Hopefully we present those in the most humble and loving way possible. But hopefully we are unashamed of the gospel. That we are bold that this is the truth. John is dealing with, do you really know God or do you not in 1 John 2? John is dealing with that the world is full of people who claim to know God, but they are in error about God. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, he says, listen to this. I may not draw a line in the sand often enough, but make no mistake about it that the word of God does. And it begs you, which side are you on? 1 John 2, verse 22. Whoever denies the Father and the Son, like they are a, like they are a combo deal, is the Antichrist. I'll read it again. Whoever denies the Father and the Son is the Christ. And if that's not big enough and bold enough for you, keep reading. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If you came here today saying, well, I, you know, I believe in God. I'm not so sure about everything else, but I do believe in Him. Would you humbly receive the truth of the Word of God today and believe in the Son? Would you hear today that God in His love for you sent His Son to die on the cross so that God could be your Father? Whoever believes in the Son gets the Father. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not get the Father. 
Jesus came making this clear. So this is how we like to say it. God is fatherly to all people everywhere. Even those who hate him, even those who have deceived themselves into thinking that they don't even believe in him, even those who are going against him, he is fatherly to them. They don't know it, but he is still their provider. They don't know it, but he holds their very life, lives in his hand. He could crush them, but since he is so good and kind and patient, he has not. He loves them. He is working in their lives. He is kind to them. He is merciful to them. He is providing their health and their work ethic. He has provided their income. He has given them their family. He has given them every single thing that they have. He is fatherly to everybody. But while he is fatherly to everybody, he is only the father to those who have become his children. He is only the father to those who have become his children. God is not the father of everyone. He is the father to those who have become his children. First, or John chapter 1 verse 12 says, All who have believed in the name of the Son of God he gave the right to become children of God. If you have not believed in Jesus as dying on the cross in your place for your sins under the punishment of God and buried in the grave dead and risen again to newness of life for you, then you are not a child of God. If you have not sought the Lord for the forgiveness of sins and said, Lord, would you save me and forgive me and would you become my father, then the Bible says God remains fatherly to you but not your father. Whoever denies the father and the son is the Antichrist and no one who denies the son has the father. The Bible must get clear about that. So here in Mark, as the unclean spirits have cried out, falling down before him, you are the Son of God, we see Jesus pointed people to God the Father. Jesus caused people to think about this. But I want to take it a little bit further. Turn back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, Mark lets us know this is the very point he wants to make. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, in his introduction, short little one verse, makes it clear this is the point he's trying to accomplish in the whole 16 chapters. This story is about Jesus. He's the Son of God. He does it really early, too. Look at verse 11. Jesus gets baptized 
And in verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. When Jesus got baptized, God Almighty, in an audible voice, which is extremely uncommon in the world today, God speaks out from heaven, that's my son. Look at him, listen to him, I am pleased with him. To see the son is to see the father. To listen to the son preach is to listen to Father God's message. To be a believer in Jesus. Jesus is to have God as your father. This is the purpose of the gospel of Mark. This is the purpose of the word of God. To make you a child of God. And if you will not believe in Jesus as the one who has done everything for you to get you to heaven, to get you to God and to make you right with God, then you have zero grounds from Scripture to claim yourself a child of God or to claim God as your Father. Jesus pointed people to God the Father. So secondly here today, fathers, since it's Father's Day, are to point their children to God the Father. We see in the Bible that this is the, the task or the responsibility or the gift. But parenting brings with it a lot, listen to me, a lot of responsibility. It really is unbelievable how stressful it is to try to get the family out the house. I mean, it is so hard. It's, it's, it's 30 minutes of just getting shoes on and brushing teeth and grabbing the diaper bag. It's a lot of responsibility. And there's a lot that goes into parenting. As all of you know, you have to make money and pay the bills and provide the food. And even after you've provided the food, then there's a lot of dishes and there's a lot of trash to take out. And even after you've successfully gotten them dressed a few days in a row, there's so much laundry that it's going to take forever to catch up and do it again. And it's this endless cycle of wearing you out. And while all those things are very important, while all those things may be the, 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 the measuring stick that we use on whether somebody is a good father or a good mother or bad father or bad mother, I want you to know today, those things aren't that big of a deal. And I would like to challenge you here today that you would quit mostly Measuring your fatherhood based off of those things. And that you would see the responsibility in the word of God. That you bearing the title and role of father has one bigger supreme responsibility. And that be that you point your children to God the father. You've heard Jesus teach before, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man if his children gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And what does it profit a boy or a girl If they've been influenced to do anything well at all through our parenting, 
if the one thing that life's about has not been the priority. It's graduation season, and we got invited to several different graduation parties, and I appreciate that. That was nice. I started adding up. If I just buy a card for, like, all the ten graduates, that's going to be 30 bucks. Not to mention the money you're supposed to put in the card. So we made homemade cards for all the graduates. The kids did. But I still wrote in them. And I wrote in them why I loved them and how I loved getting to watch them play ball or this or that. And I'm happy to be their pastor. But at the bottom of that write-up that I did, which is, you know, maybe that long, not that much. I put, I want you to know that life's about God. In whatever direction you're going now, now that you've graduated, don't miss the point of life that it's about God. And what would it matter if you became the next CEO of Walmart or the next doctor or the next preacher or the next baseball coach? Or what's it going to matter if you do all of that and yet you don't understand that life's about God. And oh, the danger of you becoming a parent and having our priorities out of order and yet not teach them that life's about God. I want to ask you here today, dads and moms too, are our children getting a better understanding of our Father in heaven through us? Because that's the whole purpose. I want to say this about dads. Your relationship with your dad is a big one, and you know that. Your relationship with your dad is most likely, listen to this, one of either the most rewarding relationships you have or the most disappointing relationships that you will ever have. That tends to be how relationships with our dads go. One of my buddies, Greg Gibson, says, Men... If you want to do something weighty with your life, something that matters and lasts and drops like a hammer in the world, listen to me. Be faithful to your wife. Be present with your children. And serve your church. You show me, listen to me, you show me a man who knows how to stay with his wife, be present with his children, and be involved in church, and I will show you children who love their dad and therefore are looking to the Father in heaven behind their dad. We see it all the time. But if you don't be present with your children or faithful to your wife or devoted to serving your church, our understanding of the Father gets really blurry. The reason why people so associated Jesus with the Father is because his focus was so clearly committed to representing the Father. To see Jesus was to deal with the Father. To see Jesus was not to say, you're God, but was to say, you remind me of God. And so it is in our fatherhood. None of us are that good of fathers. I think about how bad of a father I am more than I think about how good of a father I am. I'm more in tune with all my mess-ups than I am with all my victories as a father. And yet, I'm thankful that my kids aren't having to think about whether I'm perfect or not. 
but they're thinking about God the Father through their father. Yesterday, since it was Father's Day weekend, we sat around the breakfast table and I read to them the story of the prodigal son. Two sons and a father. I made sure they understood that the parable, a parable is Jesus' way of teaching. It's not a true story, but it's a story he uses to teach something true. It didn't really happen, but it tells you about life that really happens. And you know the story of the prodigal son. One son asks his dad, who's not yet dead yet, for his inheritance. And he takes it and he goes to a faraway country. And he, and he spends it all recklessly, living it up, the Bible tells us, with, with women. And next thing you know, he's down and out. He's spent it all. He's broke. He's miserable. He's eating with the pigs. Life has gone from top to bottom, if you will. And he's now miserable. The Bible says that when he comes to his senses, which is a good way of putting it, when he comes to his senses... He starts to think again about his father. Oh, that we would live in such a way that when our kids run and rebel and come to their senses, they think about their father. When he comes to his senses, he thinks about his father and he puts together this speech of repentance. I'm sorry, dad. Dad, I'm so sorry. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Will you forgive me? And he sets back toward home. And the Bible says when he was still a long way off, the dad saw him and took off running. Even Jesus knows that fathers are to point people to the Father in heaven. And so even Jesus tells stories about what fatherhood should be like about pointing people to the Father in heaven. And he does it in the most outlandish ways possible that hits so close to home. A runaway child that we're perhaps frustrated with or disappointed with. And the father sees him still a long way off. He hasn't made anything right. But the father sees him and runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, loves him, forgives him, picks him up and says, Let's go home, son, and we are going to throw a party for you. And we have a picture there of what a father looks like uh, to, to represent the father in heaven. I recently read 2 Timothy again. Paul says to Timothy that I'm like your father. He says, I became your father in my imprisonment. Timothy is a fa- uh, Paul is a, a father figure to young Timothy. He says this. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. What a statement. Dads, I challenge you this week to figure out what your aim in life is. And tell it to your children. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. And you know that I endured them all, and yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Can you imagine what it does to a child to hear his father speak about the father in heaven that way? Have you ever said to your kid before, ever, 
You know how I am, the way I teach, the way I walk, the way I aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my sufferings, my persecution. You know what my life is like. You know how I react. You know how I deal with things. You know my prayer life. You know my goods and my bads. You know what my priorities are. You know what your, me and your mom's marriage is like. You know what me and my friends are like. You know what me and my enemies are like. You know what I'm like. We see this from the father figure Paul to Timothy. I just heard about a project that they started in the prisons that this ministry group goes in on Mother's Day weekend and helps the inmates make Mother's Day cards and gifts for their moms. They were blown away at how successful it was. The inmates were so excited. They, they, they loved this project to be able to, which normally wouldn't happen, through this ministry group, get the present and the card and the written out thing to their moms. It was hugely successful. Nearly every inmate in the entire prison wanted to come and make a Mother's Day card and present for their mom and it would be delivered to them. Can you imagine how sweet and special and meaningful that was? The group was so encouraged by it, they said, you know what, that was May, we're going to do it again in June. We'll do it for Father's Day. A small, small few showed up. For as awesome as the Mother's Day weekend was, the Father's Day one was more discouraging, depressing, concerning. Dads matter so much. Because life matters so much. The Bible says that every child is a gift from God. The fruit of the womb on a mother is a reward from heaven. God has given you a child he gifted it to you would you here today on Father's Day so turn your life or adjust your aim to say I want to give my children back to him and so I will live and love and be involved and be attentive so that my children know the Father. May God give us grace as fathers to help our children see the Father in heaven that loves them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus pointed people to the Father and fathers are to point people to the Father. Lord, we ask today that you would Help us feel the weightiness of, of this responsibility. God, we thank you that you are a good father that loves. We ask that we would represent that well. God, we give you thanks for our fathers. And we ask for your help in being fathers and mothers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.